Hey everybody, Matt Camp here with Deal Machine. Uh, we're proud to team up with Tom Zeeb here to give you guys a ton of free stuff. So our goal here is to give you the free toolkit to get out there and start finding off-market deals. Um, we're proud to say we're the highest rated and most reviewed app out there to go find off-market deals. And we've had over 10,000 deals done using the Deal Machine app. Now, when you download it, you can get it for free at tomzeeb.com slash dealmachine, and you'll get a seven-day free trial with that. And jumping into Deal Machine, you'll be able to go out there, start driving for dollars, start pulling lists, start finding the most motivated sellers in your market. And then you can start marketing to them directly. You can skip trace, you can send them postcards, you can knock on their door. There's a variety of things that we can help you out with using our technology. And then from there, you can actually evaluate the deals, You know, comp it, use our AI assistant to help you out there as well. You really get the full toolkit to go from you know having no real estate experience to landing your first deal using technology. So it's tomzeebcom slash deal machine for that free trial. With it, if you go through that link, you're going to get $30 free in marketing credits that cover a couple hundred free skip traces or 50 free postcards, give you everything that you need to start reaching out to sellers. So um, get out there and happy deal finding. You know what an all fixed up house looks like on the outside versus one that's kind of run down and, and a little bit shabby. And also keep in mind that a house that's been totally fixed up and looks fantastic, there's a ton of photos provided because they're bragging about the kitchen, they're bragging about the bathrooms, they're bragging about how beautiful the interior is versus the listing that only has one photo of the front of the property. Welcome to the Get Traction Podcast. If you are ready to learn exactly what it takes to become a real estate entrepreneur, this is the show for you. With your host, founder of Traction Real Estate Mentors and president of the Traction Real Estate Investors Association, Tom Zeeb. Welcome back to the Get Traction Podcast. It's Tom Zeeb. Happy to be with you guys again. And we're going to shake things up a little bit for this episode, change it up a little bit. And um, what we're actually going to do is an interview between my producer, Harry Duran, and me. So Harry has gotten interested uh, through this podcast in becoming a real estate investor as well. And he's been going through my rapid cash generator kit. And I thought it would be a great idea to have him ask questions as a newbie to real estate about what's he experienced so, so far, what questions does he have so far, what's kind of on his mind, and how does one get started not having any real estate experience in the past. So Harry, how are you? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Awesome, thanks. Glad to be doing the episode this way. I think it's going to be a fun one. So uh, would you kind of uh, freeform, uh, kind of open discussion between you and me, and uh, we'll let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, it's interesting because I imagine this happens a lot when you have people that are familiar or they find out what you do, they start asking questions. And you've probably had these questions in either at your live events or, or, or when you meet friends or you're at a social gathering and, and you know, you tell, you know, you notably tell people what it is that you do. Right. And then they're just like, well, that's interesting. I've always wanted to dabble in that. And then, and then you're like, Oh, did I open up a can of worms and what are they going to ask me? And, and <laughs> <laughs> it always happens, but that's a good thing because if we, that's one of the reasons we can do the episode this way, because if we deal with those questions and you have them, I'm quite sure many other people have them. So being able to uh, get those answers, we're going to, uh, you're going to come across like a mind reader. People are going to go, that's the very question I had. And so I, I think, yeah, we'll keep it free form and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll rein me in if I, if I ask something that's not relevant, but I thought, I thought we'd kick it off as, um, just speaking to some, some changes that I'm going through in, in, in my lifestyle. So I'm, I'm a bit, um, nomadic at the moment. And obviously one of the things that I, I looked at at your, at your program, was this idea of looking for opportunities in the market that you're in. But I was curious if this might fit someone who's in my shoes, who does a bit of traveling and is not fixed in one local market. And if there's ways to um, customize or modify the system so that there's opportunities that I could be looking at uh, that would be different than someone who's um, in one location. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this actually happens to people a lot because they're they might want to invest where they are in their own backyard, so to speak. Maybe they want to invest where they want to be, where they're planning on moving to. Sometimes they invest where they have family or where they're from or maybe where their kids are you know, going to school. Uh, or it's just flat out, they're like you, they're nomadic, they're moving around and they're not sure exactly where to go or how to do it. And what's very cool specifically about the way I teach wholesaling is if I parachuted you into any part of the country and, and, and said, here, get started and go, 
this is how you would do it. So your question is effectively that, like you're, you're being nomadic. So if you're mm-hmm. parachuting into different zones, how do we get you started? Well, one of the first things you got to do is start your marketing like you would do anywhere. So you want to identify the neighborhoods in the areas that you're interested in. So I don't know, you just choose a random city and you say, all right, if I got dropped into there, what would I do? I would start driving around, driving for deals, looking for rundown dilapidated houses that you might be able to contact that might have a sign that they're a motivated seller that owns it. And at the same time, you're learning that neighborhood and you're going to want to jot some addresses down, uh, maybe grab some photos of the neighborhood, some certain houses, uh, look for what realtor signs are there. That way you can look up what those houses are selling for. So you'll have an idea of the value of a neighborhood, what something's worth all fixed up. You'll have an idea of what it's worth as is when you start looking for what those current values are. Uh, and you just might find a deal in the process because you're out there looking for it. Then you got to know what county you're in okay. because so much of your marketing is going to come down to going to that county's courthouse and starting the research for motivated sellers. So you'd start looking up probates. You'd start looking up divorces. You'd start looking up uh, tired landlords from evictions. You'd start looking up out-of-state absentee owners, people who own a house in that area but who don't even live in that state and start marketing to them. So you would basically break it down the same way as if it were local. So Mm -hmm. does it really matter if it's the town you're living in or the town you're not living in? No, it doesn't. So from someone, let's say, uh, let's say, let's pick Austin as an example, because that's one of the the cities that's going to be probably something in in the near future for me. And so if, if, you're, if I think about arriving there, is there any prep work I could be doing ahead of time? I know, you, you know one, of the, one of the suggestions you had is to create the mailers. And I wonder if there's some value in getting a, a group of mailers out uh, to a specific territory or a region that, where you know you might like, be landing in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, two, two things to remember to, to frame that out as well, Harry. Nobody knows where you are. <laughs> so if you wanted to focus on, in this example, Austin... Nobody knows if you're in L.A. or Minneapolis or New York or Miami or three feet away from them in Austin. What they what they know is that there's a phone number they can call and reach you or there's an email address that they're communicating with. So both of those are very location independent and location free. So it doesn't matter. Now, hitting your question about, well, how do you handle it in advance and what would you do ahead of time? Well, you can figure out what county Austin is in and you can look and see if that county has information available online or remote access available online. So now it doesn't matter not just what city you're in or what state you're in, it doesn't matter where in the world you are, you could be accessing those courthouse systems to pull some of this data, which you would then create an, you know, an Excel spreadsheet of the data, let's say of the mailing list, right? you know, the, the owner's name, the potential motivated seller's name, their address, their contact information, and then you can use send a postcard to that using a postcard system like a Vistaprint or the, the Postal Service's click-to-mail service, mm-hmm. uh, boom. And you can be getting calls to either an area code in that zone that you forward to you or just send it to an 800 number. That way it completely, completely takes the location dependency out of it. And, or people could be emailing you or filling out a form on your website, none of which they have to actually know where you are located. I mean, think of how many times you call customer service for any company, yeah. you don't know where you're, I mean, they're in India, they're in Asia, they're in the Philippines, they're, they're in Texas, they're in Florida, you don't know where they are, and nor does it really matter, as long as they're able to solve your problem. And that's what you're after as a real estate investor, being able to solve the problem, doesn't matter where you're physically located versus where they're physically located. Is there demographic data available? So let's say, you know, when you, when you, when you think about Austin, obviously, that's going to be in one county, but there's probably dozens of neighborhoods. And so how laser focused do you want to get um, when you think about where these types of homes typically end up? Obviously, I know that some of your earlier students have talked about going after the higher priced homes and then they realized, well, those are harder <laughs> to, 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 to wholesale simply because the allure of a higher price point is something that attracts people. But when they realize that those are far and few in between, then they realize maybe it is better to be in a neighborhood where there is a higher percentage of these types of homes that might be available? Number one thing you're looking for is what's called the bread and butter homes. Now, probably a term people have heard before, but let's define out what bread and butter is. If, if, if you've got the, that very top of the market, uh, you know, mansions and horse ranches and really elegant high-end stuff with a lot of land and, and big giant houses, that's out of range. That, that's the top of the market. Now, the opposite side of that is the complete bottom of the market, 
uh, also known as war zones, right? Mm. Completely run down, decrepit, di difficult areas as well. I want us to stay away from both the very top and the very bottom. It's that giant middle of the market, which is where this is going to work best. And out of that giant middle of the market, specifically the lower middle of that market is where the bread and butter homes are. Uh, Harry, these are starter homes. They're uh, homes that everyone needs to live in at some point. Let's say someone's in their you know, late 20s, early 30s. They look to buy a home. They get involved in a starter home because that's what they can afford. And then, you know, five, seven, 10, 12 years later, they've got a couple of kids. Their, their career is improving. Their trade is doing better. Their business is doing better. What do they look to do? They look to upgrade the house. And who do they wind up selling their old house to? Any ideas? Family? Yeah, well, <laughs> someone who was just like them yeah. when they started out, right? It, they're selling to someone else who needs to start a home. So that lower middle of the market tends to stay a, as a very stable part of the market as well because it, this house is everyone needs. We're talking, you know, they're not overly glamorous. They're just a they're kind of very basic home. And that is, um, that's kind of the cornerstone of American real estate is that house that everyone needs. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing is over time, they wear out. Right. It gets it gets cold in the winter and everything contracts and then it gets hot in the summer. Everything expands and eventually the materials break down. They wear out, they crack. And that, that's a house that then needs to be remodeled, needs to be updated. And even if that never happened, style would change. I mean, think about it. Nobody wants a, a 1960s looking home or no one wants the, the 1972 uh, the, wood, weird, the wood paneling in the yeah, basement. The wood paneling with the weird green refrigerator. I mean, that, people aren't into that anymore. That's not what's going to get you top dollar anymore. So there's a value play in renovating that as well. So basically what we're looking for is always the value play. Either the person has a situation where they need to get out quickly and there's a value play to be made in the home. It might be in a neighborhood that is now uh, gone up over time and that property just needs to be brought up to modern standards. Uh, or it, it, it's something like that. We're always looking for what that value play is, and it's usually a matter of fixing it up. You're either physically fixing the property or stylistically Im improving the property. That way it's worth a much higher value, today's value, not what it would be worth as is. That's what we're after, and you can find those homes anywhere. Have you seen, or do you, have you seen a price range for those homes that's typically where people end up when you start looking at the bread and butter? That would completely depend on the market. Because depending where you are in the country and where you choose, um, that might be a $60,000 home, but in other parts of the country, that's a $600,000 home, right? And $6,000, but that sounds ridiculous to some people, but that's only if you're living in the city, where, you know, if you're living in a $60,000 uh, area, 600 seems ridiculous because that's what your mansions and high end would be. But in other parts of the country, $600 could be pathetically average. New York City, New York City, $600,000 doesn't... <laughs> it's not going to get you much. You won't even get a parking spot in a condo. So we want to keep that in mind as well. So there's not a specific set price point. What I would encourage people to do if they're operating remotely is start to look for what values are. And that's, look, you can go to realtor.com and see what's for sale in an area or use a site like redfin.com or Zillow and see what are, what are properties currently listed for in the areas. And they're all going to have photos. And when you look mm -hmm. at that photo, you know a big glamorous house from a average house. Yeah. You know what an all fixed up house looks like on the outside versus one that's kind of run down and, and a little bit shabby. And also keep in mind that a house that's been totally fixed up and looks fantastic, there's a ton of photos provided because they're bragging about the kitchen, they're bragging about the bathrooms, they're bragging about how beautiful the interior is versus the listing that only has one photo of the front of the property, yeah. that tells you that's probably an as-is. So you're going to learn, all right, this is what as-is are selling for. This is what it could be worth all fixed up. And then you can look around. And gosh, if you're not there physically to drive around, well, Google drove their street camera all over the place. So why don't you do what I'll call a Google drive-by? There's a, a drive-by viewing rather than a drive-by shooting. You can go and, <laughs> and you know take, a, take one of your target properties, pop in the address, and then you can sit there on the Google Street View and just you can scroll 360 degrees around. You can quote unquote drive up and down the street and move around and you'll see that neighborhood and you'll see when you cross certain streets that the houses change or the housing mm. stock changes. So you want to keep that in mind that all that research can be done remotely. You don't need to be there to be doing that. So let's say you do find something through that Google Drive research and you know what the median 
market is and and um I'm trying to think what what would be the next step if if you've identi- identified some some places to start those conversations with people and to and to see if there's to gauge interest and see if people are, are are selling would you do that from the research you're doing on Zillow or would you do would you would you expect some of that to come as a result of like your postcard marketing I expect it to come more from my postcard marketing so when I'm doing this initial research it's to get a sense of the neighborhoods and the pricing and when I when I see a bread and butter home in a photo I'm going to look up that address and see what neighborhood it's in because I'm probably that's going to be a targeted neighborhood. I'm going to say, oh, I like that neighborhood. That's got that's a big bread and butter neighborhood. Fantastic. And get to know that and then maybe tag that neighborhood to do a little more targeted research. All right, you know, let's maybe mail everybody in the neighborhood or mail everyone who's an absentee owner in that neighborhood. See if there's any tired landlords. I'm going to start in that area or that county and start pulling the research to hit the probates, hit the out-of-state absentee owners, hit the tired landlords. And then, you know, if I ever am in that town and visiting that town, then I'm going to want to do my driving for deals there, try to generate bird dogs there, et cetera. Um, at the same hand, the other thing I have to be doing, since I'm going to be wholesaling, I got to build a buyer's list. So I got to start to see who are the buyers in that area. And the number one way you're going to do that is find out the local real estate investors association. That is a room full of people who want to rehab houses or buy and hold them and landlord them. And so there's no better spot to go than just finding that local real estate investors association, local RIA, and boom, that could be all the buyers list you ever need right there. Is there a concern sometimes from new folks who are new to this that when they start to have those conversations that the person who's a seller is going to be asking questions about how much ex- experience I have doing this? Yes, <laughs> I think I think most uh, quote unquote newbies go through that that you know fear factor of that. That's one of the reasons why you want to get comfortable talking to people. So one of the reasons why um, at my boot camp I, I I just make people do I force them to do it on the spot. It's the implementation boot camp. I want to get them implementing what they're learning, and we will look up uh, for sale by owner ads and start calling them, because. I don't expect it to go anywhere. And I tell everyone, don't expect this to go anywhere. What I expect you to get is practice. I want to get you comfortable talking to people, dealing with the different personality types, the different ways people have conversations, and starting to move them through uh, my structure for how to deal with calls. And I don't, I don't follow a script, Harry, because life doesn't follow a script. And scripts are usually intensely frustrating when you're on the, the other end of the script. You know, if you ever call a call center and they're trying to, you know, like the person, they're not even acting like a human being. They're just reading from a script. It drives me mad. Yeah. So I like to teach them in a framework. My framework for how to handle a call is called my deal worksheet. And it, it's all the different questions that you should be asking. But there's no particular order you need to ask them in. Because quite honestly, if you go make 10 phone calls, you're going to have 10 wildly different conversations. And that's one of the things I want you to learn how to do is handle the different types of sellers that you come across. So even though you don't have any confidence now at the beginning, when you get some practice and talking to people, it's going to boost your confidence like nothing else. I mean, there's no substitute for that experience. And that's an experience you can start having right now simply by calling for sell by owner ads. So maybe we can dive into that a little bit to give people a little taste of what happens at one of your boot camps and get them excited for when you get the next one uh, up and running. So, so walk me through that, that exercise. Like it, let's say we're, we're in the boot camp and, and you want me to get my feet wet because, um, you know, it's something that I need experience with and, and how to have those conversations. So where, where do we start looking at these and what's the best place to, to, is it just opening up Craigslist or how do you usually recommend we go about doing this? Craigslist is a great source. Sometimes the local newspaper, the newspaper's been slipping a little bit, but the classified ads that they usually have online, a lot of people will list the property for sale by owner there as well. So usually between Craigslist and the local newspaper, you'll find enough leads. And what I do is I hand, I hand all my students a stack of my deal worksheet, or literally it's a pad, right? It's a gift. They're like, here's, here's a deal worksheet pad. And there, you know, there's, there's 100 sheets of deal worksheets you know, glued together at the top. And, and I said, just start, and I want to get through 10 of these. I want you to make these calls, because not everyone you call is going to have a snowball's chance in you know where of turning into anything, but that's fine. I want you to have the conversation. And what you find is, look, most of the time with FISBOs, with the, the For Sale Banners, FSBO, people are out of their mind. They're trying to sell it themselves because they, they want far more than the property is actually worth. Yeah. So no going in, you've got nothing to lose by talking to them. The pure purpose of this is for the practice. 
students go do it during the breaks and they practice and then they're able to come back in then during the, during the implementation bootcamp and ask questions and put them on the hot seat and say, all right, how did the calls go? And, and because, and like, what did you hear yourself say? And what do you wish you would have said different? And how, you know, overall, what was the, what was the path and direction of the call? And then if, if there's still conversation that they need to be having with that particular seller, because sometimes you get a live one, then they're able to go, I, I keep refining what they're doing, tell them how to handle the next hurdle, how to get over that next hurdle, avoid that next pitfall and move ahead. Then they go and make the call and do that and keep coming up. We keep refining that process forward. And what happens is by the end, you're confident in what you're doing because you realize it's all right. It's not a big deal to talk to people anymore. You've done it. What's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to hang up on you. All right. So (laughs) what? So, I mean, think about Harry, someone you've never met, someone you don't know, you're never going to see or have any more communication with in life hung up on you. Oh, well, get over it. And, and it's hard at the beginning, but after, I'll tell you, you get hung up on a few times, you really realize you're still breathing, you're still living, your heart's still beating, you're fine. Have you ever had scenarios where, where that happens and people come back from the break and they actually have someone who's more than normally interested? Like this, the seller? Oh, yeah, yeah no, I, I, have, I have students sometimes walk away with deals from it. And at the last boot camp, we've got two really solid hours, two separate students both have something that it looks like it's going to carry on really nicely. The numbers are right. They've worked the person down. You know, they've put all the different negotiation I taught them into play. And then we were able to, to do a couple iterations of, of, of help and training with them so they're getting the right direction going on the call. It's a wonderful thing. So it's a great way for you to start as well, no matter, no matter what part of the country you choose. Start calling the FISBOs in that area and get a sense of what's going on and get a sense of how people are talking. And you're going to improve yourself throughout the entire process. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that I'm sure a lot of the listeners can relate to. It's just we, we tend to overthink these things and, and so almost talk ourselves out of it, right? Yes. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> always, basically. Yeah, that's always. And that's why I tell people, relax. If you're, if you're scared of talking to people, yeah, you're going to struggle. So let's work on that fear and get you over the fear of it. The other thing is the reason to practice so much on people who don't matter, like, you know, the physicals, they don't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might get a solid lead out of it, but I'm, I'm telling you, don't even expect that. The pure goal of talking to them is practice. That way, when you do get the good leads in the future from doing your marketing the correct way, you're in a better spot to talk to them and not, you know, not drop the ball, not fumble, because you, you've already cut your teeth and got your practice in on people who don't matter. So that's actually a really important reason to just face your fear on it and move ahead. And I look, anyone who is afraid of talking to people uh, just, just do it. Try it. Remember, the worst that happens is you get hung up on, or someone says something nasty. Who cares? Yeah. You'll you'll realize how fast you can get over it because it just doesn't matter. But the only way to prove that to yourself is to actually do it. So let's say you you start making some progress going down this path, and there's a more than normal sense of interest from the seller. You just happen to get the right person at the right time. At what point should you start thinking about a uh, contract or start thinking about, obviously, you, you mean, you're not going to be thinking about the buyer, but that, that's something for me with it being in the back of my mind, like, okay, this is, be careful what you ask for, because now I have someone who is <laughs> per- closer than they were when we started the conversation. And then I'm thinking about all the training that I received from Tom. And I'm like, well, we've got, a, we've got this simple contract. And when do I introduce that? And then, and then how much time will I have before I lose this person? And how much time do I have to go look for a buyer? Yes. So a couple, a couple things. There's, you've mentioned a lot of things. So let me try to pick them apart one by one. That fear of what would I do if I actually get it is huge. And is, but in many ways, if you think about it, it's the fear of if I've got, you know, there's seven different bridges to cross. You're, you're afraid of bridge number six. And if that stops you from crossing bridge number one, that's a problem. Like if you don't want to make the calls because... Well, I don't know what I would do if this happened. Well, that's problematic. So what I want you to do is, is this is one of the reasons to get fully trained, because then you have the confidence, you know, you can cross each bridge when you actually get there, which means take that first step, cross whichever bridge is immediately in front of you, and we'll worry about those other bridges when we actually get there. Now, it's a good reason too, to, if you feel that way, start building your buyers list. That way you won't have that lingering doubt in the back of your mind. You won't have that... Um, 
fear of, well, what do I do if they say yes? Or what do I do if this one actually works out? You'll know you have people you can reach out to. So as you start marketing for motivated sellers, you also need to be building your buyers list of cash buyers. That way you'll know you'll have people that want to send you. These are other investors. It's simple. People, either rehabbers or landlords. Those are two types of investors that you're going to put on your list. Those are also the two most common types of investors. So go out there and start building that list for the area that you want to be working, and then you're not going to have that fear. All right, just a quick question on buyers. Yeah. Is that typically a location-specific group? Yes. Or, or do you find that there are people that buy nationwide? Now, you're much more likely to find location-specific buyers. Okay. And that's why you need to do the specific work of researching them in the area you're in. That's why I say the number one way is find the local RIA, the local Real Estate Investors Association, and go there. Because, I mean, that's where you've got your rehabbers are hanging out, your landlords are hanging out, and they're all buyers. So it's an easy way of putting it. Yeah, but, but buyers buy very locally. Okay. And then, so you were taking me through the... The, the couple of things that I was bringing up as, as, as things to be uh, apprehensive about. Was, was there anything else? Uh, let's see. You're apprehensive about the buyers, so we want to solve that problem. It's a worrying about like the progression through it. What, what if you get a live one and what happens? Well, that's one of the reasons why you want to lean back on your training and you want to know, you know what to say and how to say it. And there will be a point where you're going to want to figure out the comps. So let's assume at this point you're dealing with it remotely. Maybe it's in your own town. Maybe it's remotely. Either way, the first thing you do is not jump out of your seat, get in the car, and go see it. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you're local or not. Yeah. Uh, if you want to do a drive-by, you go to Google Maps, and you, you look at the street view, and you can get a sense of the street that way. Then you can run some comps on it and figure out the comps comparables, right? Figure out what the property is worth. Now you'll know at the price they're at, is there enough of a differential that it might make sense? You're going to want to do a light idea of the repair estimate. Now, is that tricky without seeing it? Kind of. But you ask people, when's the last time it's been updated? You know, if, if they told you, you know, a couple of years ago, that's one thing. If they tell you it hasn't been updated since, you know, 1967, then you know it needs a full update. And you can estimate and guesstimate your repair cost purely on the square footage of the property. And you'll start having a rule of thumb, or what? What I tell people, at the very least, figure on forty grand. Okay. It's very hard to renovate for less than forty grand when you figure. You know, if you're going to put a kitchen in and a few baths and spruce to join up, it's going to be at least forty. At worst comes to worst, keep forty grand in your mind as the potential renovation cost. Now, what's it worth from the comps? We know at least forty grand on the renovation, and what number are they talking? And the only time you really want to jump in the car and go over there and see it or make an arrangement for somebody to go see it maybe on your behalf if you're out of town is if their number is heading in the right direction and that's the downward direction right if you're able to get them down to the number that you need all right and you're gonna we've talked about negotiation in previous episodes right you start lower and let them bring you up yeah but you're effectively got to get them down to the price that works that's what you're looking for when those numbers start to come together then we know we've got a true live one but don't jump the gun. A lot of times you're just going to, most of the calls you deal with, they're not going to go anywhere. You, you've got to have that mindset right as well that, hey, it, this is a numbers game. You know, if it's one out of, you know, 35, one out of 40 calls that are going to turn into something, well, that means you've got to put up with, you know, 34 to 39 rejections before you hit that magical 35th or that magical 40th. You want to, you know, and so it's a good thing when someone says no. It's a mm -hmm. good thing when a call goes nowhere because now you're one step closer to the call that will work. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the process of figuring out the, the comps to someone who's new to this? Yes. So you want to look for three to five all fixed up properties that are very similar to the property that, you, that you're dealing with and in the same location. And by location, I mean the same neighborhood, if it's urban, and the same subdivision if it's suburban, mm. okay? Because you, you're going to have you know, neighborhoods and subdivisions tend to have almost identical housing stock, and so uh, it all, which also means it's appreciated at the same level. It's also fallen apart and decayed at the same level. And so when you fix it up, you'll know, and you want to look for comps. We want to find three to five 
similar properties, right? Compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Don't crisscross or you, you'll, you'll, you won't get an accurate reading. Uh, three to five properties that you can compare against that were sold in the last six months. And you can be doing that either on the MLS or on a service like Redfin. I, I particularly like them. It's, it, you know, the, everything comes up graphical. It's on a map. I can see what the nearby houses are. Make sure they're truly nearby. I can click on the photos to make sure they look like my subject property. And that's how I'm going to figure out my comps. And Redfin is something that you can just sign up for online, right? You don't have to work with a realtor. Yeah, they have a fr- no, they have a free account, and yeah, you, you don't need a license to do it. You can go there, set up a free account, and there's a home valuation tool. Like I don't, they keep moving around on the page because everyone redesigns their websites monthly these days. But somewhere there's what is my home worth? You'll put in your subject property, and then start to look at what it what it compares it against, and then it's your job to look at the photos, make sure that's a true match. And you're looking for the ones that have already been fixed up. That's your after repair value. If you find properties that aren't fixed up, that are just as is, that's your fair market value. That's what the property's worth in its current condition, not what it could be all fixed up. Remember, the value play is that we're going to put money into this, make it all fixed up so it's bright and shiny and gets top dollar. So from a, from a order of steps perspective, would I do the comp before? Before I get on the call, once I know who I'm going to call, or, or you know, I think I'm always wondering, like, or should I do this while I'm on the call? <laughs> well, I think while you're on the call is probably too distracting yeah. because the comps are going to take a little bit of focus. If you have the address in advance, and particularly at the beginning when it's good for you to get practice and learn how to comp something, then go ahead and comp it first. That way, when you're on the call, you'll have an idea of where you're heading. You know, is there if their price is way above the comps or exactly at the comp value? you've got some work to do. And if they won't budge downwards, it's not going to be a live one. Just, you know, say, you know, next and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if they come in a little bit lower than what you know it to be worth and they keep moving lower and you're able to negotiate and move that price down, um, then you're creating the spread you need to make it into a deal. That's excellent. So if you know the address in advance, go ahead, because it, it gives you a leg to stand on. It'll help you in your angle. Now, if it's someone responding to your marketing, you don't have the ability in advance to know who's going to call. Mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so when they, when they do, you can take them through the process, see what they think, and then you gracefully bow out of the call saying, all right, let me do a little bit of research, sir or ma'am. Uh, and then I'll call you back. So I, I need to do a little bit of research. When's a good time to talk to you? You know, are you going to be around later today? Can I call you tomorrow? And then kind of arrange a, a time that you're going to call. And then you've got your time to go do your comps, kind of take a breath, figure out what's happening, uh, figure out where you want to head in that deal. And now when you call them back and get them back on the phone, you can drive the negotiation to the price that you need to make it into a deal. Uh, do you have any eight, uh, thinking when thinking about the call um, and just like the different pieces we need um, ahead of time? Is, is have you used that eight hundred service that you prefer? Yeah, I get, the, the main thing is: do you want to use a you know your own area code or an eight hundred number? And if you are only going to focus in one zone, if you're only in one region and there's a familiar local area code, mm. there's nothing wrong with using that. On the other hand, if you're going to focus on multiple areas or multiple area codes, and if maybe you having a, an odd area code from different part of the country, if that confuses people yeah. or makes you seem more distant or foreign, then I would skip it and just switch to an 800 number. And you can get an 800 number through any service you want. Get, just get one that redirects where you can control it online and then redirect it to your phone number. Then nobody, you know, then nobody knows. They're calling an 800 number and it doesn't matter what your area code is. So I don't find it to be like people aren't as area code sensitive as they used to be because yeah. there's so many more area codes, mobile but phones and all that. Yeah. Mobile phones and everything. People understand you might have a mobile phone number from wherever you lived 10 years ago. And that that's the way it is. But I still, it, there's still a slight bit more familiarity when, you know, you're dialing a number that is in your own area. That's why the 800 number can just you know, balance all that out. And so now when we're thinking about the, that conversation and we've got the, we know what the comp number is, we're guesstimating up the 40K for the repairs. What other numbers do we need to be taking into account as we kind of move into the, the home stretch of, um, you know, finalizing a, a number with the, with, the, with the interested seller? Yeah. Well, I need to know my target and what my max is. So we call that the MAO, the, the MAO, the maximum allowable offer. Like what's the maximum amount that 
you could say yes to that would still make it work as a deal. And in general, I'm going to give you a formula, but I, I'm, I'm going to tell you in advance there's a caveat, and I'll talk about that caveat in a second or, or something you got to customize and change. In general, that formula is the after repaired value of the property times 70%. So take 70% of that number and then subtract out the repair cost. That's the maximum amount that a rehabber wants to pay for a property. Right? So let's assume it's a rehab example. The maximum amount they want to pay is 70% of the after repair value minus the repairs. So let's say it's, um, let's say it's 300K and 70% of that would be uh, 2210, right? I'm not good at doing math in my head, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, so let's 70, say, 70% of 100 would be 70, so 70 times 3 would be, tw- yeah, be 21, right? Yeah, 21, yeah. So, so, so that would be 210. Then you let's say the you've guesstimated the repairs at 40, so you do the 210 minus the 40, and that would get you to 170. Yes. So 170 is where my buyer, my rehabber, my rehab buyer would want to buy it from me at. So, Harry, if we're going to be a wholesaler, I have to sign it for less than 170 to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Now, how much less? If I sign it for 160, how much money do I make? 10K. 10K. If I sign it for 150, how much do I make? Yeah, 20. 20K. So the way I figure out my fee, remember, I'm not, I'm not stuck with only 6% or only, I, my fee is solely determined by how good of a job I do negotiating. The better job I do negotiating, the more money I'm going to make, be that, you know, five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand or more. The least amount of money I've ever made as a, in a wholesale fee is 3,500 bucks. I like to see no less than five, and I tell my students, don't go, you know, don't go less than five. Set mm-hmm. it up as a $5,000 minimum, because if, you know, if anything changes or fluctuate, you can get squirrels now. But oop, one time I wound up down to 3,500. That was my low end. The most I've ever made on a deal is 65,188. I average, with the house prices in the areas that I focus on, I average a little bit shy of 25,000. So it's a nice wholesale fee per deal, but it's purely how good of a job I do negotiating. So when I know what the maximum amount the rehabber is going to pay, then I know as a wholesaler, I got to get it. I got to get the seller to agree to less than that. But it's a nice back of the envelope math um, to go in with when you're starting these conversations to to, to know where you're going to be, yep. even if you to don't have the target. yeah, even if you don't have the specifics about exactly what it would be to to repair. Correct. Now the caveat I was talking about is, is it always 70%? No, it's not. You gotta figure out what the number is for your area. It's probably around 70, but some areas, if it's a little tighter, things might be 65% minus repairs. If it's a little looser, the market's really hot or things are appreciating really good, maybe 75% minus repairs or 73 or 68, somewhere in between that range. Usually 65, 70, 75% minus repairs is the number. How do you figure out what it's going to be for you in the area that you're working? Ask. Ask your buyers. Ask, ask them how they buy. Mm. So you know, what are you after? How do you calculate it? Do you use a percentage and, and ask them what it is? And then you'll know. And then you tweak your numbers to match. It's that simple. And is there anything else in terms of lawyers' fees or any other processing paperwork fees that need to be taken into account as well? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, because, you know, I have made my attorneys a ton of money over the years. It, I, I settle with settlement attorneys, but, you know, if you're in an area, it might be a, a title company or an escrow officer, either way, the person that does the settlement for you. I've made them a ton of money over the years, uh, except that it hasn't been my money paying them because all of those fees are paid for by the buyer and the seller, okay. of which I am neither. I'm the middleman. So they're, the the... The seller is the motivated seller, but it's the ultimate end buyer that's paying as well. So the seller and the ultimate end buyer are paying the fees. I was the original buyer, but I've traded out my position. I've sold it, assigned it, and made a profit by giving my position over to that ultimate end buyer, and they're the ones paying the fees. You know, the taxes are all being paid for the, on, on the property, the, um, all, all the dock prep and the settlement cost and the title insurance that's all being covered seller and buyer. None of it's actually coming out of my pocket. So I have a very low expense business. My, my expense is marketing. And when you think about getting to the point where, so let's maybe we've got a number figured out. And then as we, as we get closer, we're, we're at a point where, um, we're, we're talking contracts now, right? And I know you've got a very simple contract, uh, that you usually try to get into the seller's hands as, as soon as it's clear that they're ready to move forward. Right. 
Yes. Like when to present the contract is good. When I've, that's a good discussion to have because what I like to do is, I call it a dangle. You, you put it, when, when you make an offer, it's often very good when the, to put it in writing, just fill out the contract with that number and dangle it in front of them. Because it's very tempting that there's the contract, it's written down, so it's, it comes across very formal, it's very believable because there's a contract with a price on it. And therefore, it's also very tempting to sign it and be done with the deal. They want to sign it, they want to move on. They can start to taste the money, they can understand what's happening because it's there and you dangle that not just offer in front of them, but you're dangling the contract in front of them. So I like preparing the contract as the offer. I don't usually send a separate offer letter or anything. We've, we've talked about what that offer is on the phone, and then I just put it in the writing in the form of the contract. It's a four-page contract. I fill it out. It's not difficult. I fill out the blanks, send it over, boom. And it's very tempting for them to say yes and carry on. And do you find, again, dealing with the, the idea of this being parts of it remote, it, it, have you had experiences where, you know, I, I know you've talked about handing this contract over, having it in the trunk of your car and just filling it out and handing it to them, but sure. that may not be an option. So um, I know, I think people still have fax machines. I don't know if that's common, but <laughs> are you seeing more of, of a digital signing nowadays? Oh, yeah. well, well, okay. So uh, a couple things on this. Yeah. The fax machine is a lot less common. Uh, and a lot less popular. It's more likely someone scans it and emails it, mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. The automatic signing, I, I will admit to being a little old school here. I like to have an actual physical signature. I know there's DocuSign, and most of my attorneys will use it. Most of my settlement agents will use it. I, I've got one particular that really doesn't like it, it is even more old school than me. Um, it, there's something to be said about actually signing the contract I think is important because the, the problem with the digital signature is you just click, you know, initial, initial, initial sign, initial, initial, initial sign. And you're not really thinking about it. It's not the same way. Here, here's a little tip and trick that I like to do. Now, it's interesting you, you mentioned handling it remotely because I haven't met half my sellers. Mm -hmm. I spend so much time focusing on out-of-state absentee owners. And one of the benefits of working with me is that they do not need to come to town. To settle it so everything's done remotely and i've never met them so i will email them the contract or fax them the contract and i ask for it to be returned to me either fax it or you know scan it and email it and i want them to put their physical signature on it but i go one step further harry i ask them to sign it in front of a notary and have the contract notarized mm -hmm. now it's kind of an interesting point because the notary is completely unnecessary there's no legal reason to have the notary there. Contracts don't need to be notarized. Mm -hmm. But yet I asked them to notarize it anyway. Why? Um, the reason is simple. When they have to take the time and the effort to leave the house with the contract, go find a notary at the bank or a store or wherever they, wherever they find it. Or go notary. find a printer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They go find a printer, they print it out, and then they're gonna go in front of a notary, pay whatever, three, four bucks, pull out their driver's license, identify themselves, prove they are who they say they are, explain what it is that they're signing, and then sign it in front of someone who then takes a giant seal or a stamp issued by their state and certifies that that's them. Do you think they want to sell that property? Yeah, that's, that, that's yeah, the they do. steps towards commitment there. Yeah, it's a step towards commitment. So I'm proving that they're committed to it. I'm proving they actually want to do it, and I'm making them... Oh, kind of psychologically have to go through that so that I know that that's what they actually want to do. And you don't get that same kind of loving with DocuSign. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you just don't. So I'm a little old school about it. Now, you know, if somebody wants to sign it with a digital pen, like, you know, I, I, you know on a tablet or something, I'm okay with that. Um, it, but not if it's got to be notarized. When it's got to be notarized, they've got to print it out and physically do it. It's a couple extra steps. But I like those extra steps because they prove that that person is committed to me. So talk a little bit about uh, I think this I think this last piece will round it off. But I just talk a little bit now. You get that bag, you get it signed, and in my mind the clock starts ticking. Right, you're like I need a buyer. <laughs> yeah. So yes. talk, So talk about um, you know what obviously if you've built up a list you start making those calls. But how do you how does that initial conversation go and when you're doing this you know for for the first few times? Yeah. Well, yeah. The first order of business as soon as you get the contract is start marketing it out to your buyers. Because if you're wholesaling, you're not the one buying it. So now you've got to find somebody that wants to take that deal off your hands. So I first thing I do is I, I type up an email. 
uh, following my structure for you know, what goes in a buyer's list message that goes out to buyers. And I tell them about the property. It's everything that, um, everything they need to know to make a decision. Okay. So it's the address, it's the description of the property. I send a photos that I took of it when I inspected it. Or if you're dealing remotely, then you've asked maybe the seller, hey, can you send me some photos? I, I send a link to a gallery of photos. I don't put the actual photos in the email because okay. that's likely to get blocked by spam. I send a link to a gallery. Same way you would share photos of your, of your family. Put, yeah. it, put it in that kind of gallery. Boom. I send a link to the comps because I'm establishing what I think the value of the property is all fixed up. I'm using the photos of the property in its current condition to back up effectively in writing, right? I'm, I'm, you know, visually, I'm backing up my repair estimate and then I'm stating my asking price. And that is my entire asking price, which includes the amount I have it under contract for, plus the amount of the assignment. I don't break that out and tell them how much is assignment and how much is, is underlying purchase price. You give them one, one number? I give them only one number, and that's super important, because you don't want them trying to just negotiate your fee down. You want them looking at it saying, all right, this, is, this works for me or not. And I send it out basically at 70% minus repairs. Or if it's a you know seventy two miles repairs or sixty eight miles or whatever my number is for that specific region that neighborhood I send it out and I tell my buyers contact me you need to have proof of funds if you want to go see it I'll either give you the lockbox code to enter it if it's vacant or if it's being lived in then I've got to make I have a set time that I let everybody come at the same time that way I'm only inconveniencing the owner living there or the tenant who's living there one time and I go. And I ask them to, you know, here, step out and have a coffee. Give me an hour with my with my team and, and let my people inspect the property. Is there a fear or where you, in terms of undercutting? And, you know, obviously once once you have the person who has the money to buy and they start having conversations with the seller, you know, there's there's some probably worry that some people might figure out what, what the, those real numbers look like. Well, um, two things. I have it under contract. So... I'm the only one they can legally sell it to. And if I need to, I can record that contract and cloud, what's called cloud the title. So nobody else would be able to get in there until they had my contract released. Usually you don't need to do that because you have, the way I've taught you to negotiate, you have really strong rapport with the seller and that's, that's not going to be an issue. I also minimize though, just out of you know, kind of basic human nature, I, I minimize the chit chat and rat-a-tat-tat between the, my buyer inspectors and the seller. So if the sellers or whoever it is, I'll tell them, you know, step out, get a coffee, come back a minute or whatever, just hang out in the room, <laughs> you know, you just sit and watch TV. And then I tell my buyers, hey, you know, that's my seller in the kitchen or that's my seller sitting there watching TV. Don't talk to them. You know, don't disturb them. Talk to me because I'm the one you have to deal with, not them. So just to make sure that, you know, nothing bizarre happens like that. But I have legal control over the property, so no one else can interfere. They can try. They won't be able to. What, the, what they'll find is they'll wind up paying me. You know, let's say somebody tried to get in there and get my deal. Well, I would record the contract, cloud the title, and now they got to pay me anyway to have my 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 uh, my contract released. And uh, so is, is that the one instance where it might make sense to actually be on site? Yes. Oh, it's very helpful to be on site for that. Um, on the other hand, if you're out of town, ask somebody else to go for you. I travel a ton, okay? I mean, I've been 100 plus, you know, 109 plus countries all over the world half the time. I'm not here. And, you know, if a deal comes up, how do I go see it? Well, a lot of times, you know, you'll start to learn who your top buyers are and, and, and the guys and gals you can trust. And I'll reach out to some specific buyers and say, look, I'm out of town right now and I can't go inspect this property. Um, I'll give you first dibs on it. Go take a whole bunch of photos and send them to me. And then I'll give you first dibs. If you want it, let me know. And great. If they say yes, fantastic. Then it goes really smooth. If not, then I had someone do a walkthrough, inspect the property, tell me what they thought of it. And they sent me all their photos. So I have a good look of what the inside is. So you don't need to be physically present. And then just, I guess the last piece there is once that's they agree, then there's a, a transfer of the contract? Yes, using what's called the assignment contract. Okay. So once the buyer agrees... I have them sign my one-page assignment contract. They have to put my entire wholesale fee into escrow with the settlement officer, with the settlement agent. And uh, then that settlement agent will work on the settlement, working on the closing to transfer the property from the motivated seller to this ultimate end buyer. 
and I get paid in the process. And my payment's called the assignment fee or the project fee or the wholesale fee. I don't care what they call it. I just care that it's fully disclosed and that it's on the settlement sheet. And who's who's responsible for uh, bringing the escrow or settlement agent to the negotiation? Is that the buyer or is that someone that you have a relationship with? Oh, that's me. Okay. That's me and you. I want, I want it to be your person because then you're dealing with your own team and they treat you like the team leader. If you've got, I mean, you could say, ask your buyer, who do you want to settle with? But now you're going to be the outsider because mm -hmm. you're right. You're not that team leader anymore. So I want you to have somebody that you work with. So you, the other thing, you know, when you're exploring a new area is let's find out who the good settlement companies there are, who are the good, you know, escrow companies or title officers, whatever it's called in the, in the region you're after. Um, easiest way is ask, ask around to the real estate investors association. A lot of times there's a sponsor of the group who is a, uh, a settlement officer or a title okay. company. Um, other times just ask other investors, ask the buyers who they use, who's investor friendly, and then introduce yourself to that person and bring them onto your team. And then they become your person. So it's good to have someone in mind or someone you can reach out to as, as you get closer with these negotiations. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And now look, Harry, if you can't in advance, you'll put it together on the fly as you're going through the process. But if you can have an idea in advance, it's a very good thing. So when you're meeting your buyers, say, hey, who do you who do you close with? Who do you settle with? Do you like them? Have they been good? Are they investor friendly? Oh, fantastic. Well, you know what? I'm going to call them and I'll tell them you referred me. Okay. Everybody's happy. Lots of stuff there. We're uh, almost <laughs> at, at the full hour and I think this is extremely helpful. I think there's a lot of people listening who are excited about this idea of wholesaling. They've probably heard it as a buzzword. And, uh, you know, I think they, they've, there's some trepidation, which you probably see with new students. And I'm glad we were able to talk through some of the ideas that I was worried about. And it, I think just even having this conversation gives me a little bit more confidence to at least try it. You know, it, it may not be for everyone, but I think there's enough here for people to see if they can get their feet wet a little bit and see if there's something that, that, that they can investigate. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to you doing your first deal, <laughs> Harry. Yeah, so we'll definitely be in touch and maybe we'll need a follow up here. Uh, on how they went and I think this this we might already be setting ourselves up for a future episode where I report back now <laughs> Oh, yeah, we'll be going through the steps of the deal. I know yeah. it. Well, I appreciate again you, you taking the time to walk me through it I think this is again be very helpful and this is I this is sort of one of those episodes where people are uh, Are gonna be taking a lot of notes and I think playing back bits and pieces of this um, to, So that they can get ready for their first negotiations Fantastic. Well, Harry, thanks and thanks to all the listeners out there uh, another episode of the Get Traction Podcast in the can. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening. Your next step is to visit GetTractionPodcast.com. There you'll find all current episodes and a link to download a free copy of Tom's Deal Flow Cheat Sheet. Happy wholesaling. <laughs>